You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. You may be wondering why are we looking at this topic of Britain, this little island which uh, is slightly larger than the state of Victoria. Of what relevance does it have to, to us today? And we hope to show that by looking at this little country of Britain in the light of Bible prophecy, that we can have a great confidence that God has a plan, a plan that is unfolding before our very eyes, and that we can be involved in that plan. Now, it may surprise you to learn that God, in fact, has a plan. I mean, wherever we look, whatever corner of the globe we turn our attention to, we see uncertainty. Whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's North Korea, whether it's the uncertainty of pandemic, wherever we turn, we find there's uncertainty and the world seems to lurch from one predicament to another. But what we're going to see tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is that it's all in control. God's got it all in control. And what is happening in the world today is consistent with his plan revealed in his word. So why are we looking at Britain in particular tonight? Well, quite simply this, that that little country is referenced in a number of places in the Bible. And what the Bible has to say would happen to Britain we can see coming to pass. So the purpose tonight is not so much about looking at Britain, but by looking at Britain, to give us confidence in this word, the Bible, and that more importantly, we can trust God and follow his ways. You know, the Bible says that in the latter days, it's a, it's a figure of speech that is used in a number of places in the Bible, the latter days, which refers to the time when Christ will return, it says that Britain will part ways with Europe. And that's a trend that we see happening before us and it's a trend that we're going to establish from the Bible that that would happen. We're going to look at recent events so far as Britain is concerned, but even if we were to cast our mind back hundreds of years we see that God has been at work with that tiny little nation. And the fact that you've got a Bible in your hands is testimony to that. You know, there was a time where it said the sun never set on the British Empire. And it was true that in every part of the globe there was some place that was colonised by Britain. Have you ever wondered why that was? For a very good reason that God was at work making it possible for in all those places of the world where Britain colonised and the English language was spread to make the reading of the Bible available to millions of people rapidly. The same thing happened during the time of Alexander the Great. He spread the Greek language right throughout the countries that he conquered and subsequently that made the reading of the then version of the Bible, the Septuagint, available to people. So God's been working with this little nation of Britain over hundreds of years. Wind the clock forward a little bit to the 16th century, to the time of Henry VIII. 
If you know anything about Henry VIII, you'll know that he married someone and they had, had a child, but it wasn't a boy and he wanted to have a boy. And the only way he could solve his problem in his eyes was to get rid of his wife and to marry another. Of course, that brought him into conflict with the Catholic Church. So Henry solved that. He separated from the Roman Catholic Church and from its influence and remarried. And um, not only that, he introduced a number of significant reforms in Britain that separated it from the influence of the papacy. And we're going to see the relevance of that a bit more tonight. So we're going to begin by looking at one of the more recent events that involved Britain, something that we will all be familiar with, and that is Brexit. It was one of the most significant steps, so far as the Bible is concerned, in Britain distancing itself from Europe. Let's just remind ourselves of what Brexit was all about. It's short for British exit from what? From the European Union. On the 23rd of June 2016, seems a long time ago now, doesn't it? The United Kingdom held a referendum and that referendum was quite simply, do we stay in the EU or do we go? And the Leave side won by nearly, or by 52% to 48%. You know, that was a very surprising outcome. Both the then Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition were both campaigning to remain in the EU. Not only that, the, you know, the, most of the um, population of Britain is centred in London and it was known by the polls that most Londoners favoured staying in the EU. Why was that? Well, because, you see, they were closely... Their jobs were dependent upon the relationships with, that they had with companies in Europe. So it seemed certain that the Leave vote would win. How did it come about that Britain voted to leave the EU? Well, you see, the day of voting was the 23rd of June. On the morning of the 23rd of June, just after midnight, an unusual storm hit Britain. Now, when I say an unusual storm, it was unusual in this sense. It was summer, and at that time of year, almost all of the storms come from the west. But this storm came from the east. And in fact, it came from the direction of Brussels. And the consequence of that was that a number of people were unable to get to the polling booths. And in fact, a number of people in London assumed that it was it's going to be a slam dunk that the, the Remain vote would win and didn't even bother to make the effort to vote. This is what the paper said three minutes, or the, the, um, the online news feed said three minutes after the, the vote concluded, or the, the ballot period. Thousands of people are believed to have been unable to get back to vote at the polling stations before 10pm. Vote affected by flooding and bad weather. The Leave vote won by 1.3 million votes. It's estimated 2 million people didn't vote in London. And we'd ask you, ladies and gentlemen, was that just chance? Or was there a, a divine hand at work? We'll let you decide. 
But we'd suggest to you that it was an illustration of that Bible passage which says, stormy winds fulfilling his word. So after 43 years under the yoke of the EEC slash EU, Britain voted to leave the EU. And that separation took place on the 31st of January, 2020. And as Bible students, we were really excited about that. Not because we're smarter than anybody, but simply because we've read our Bible, we're able to identify where Britain is in the Bible and see what the Bible had to say about its relationship with Europe. And we'll show you so shortly why we believe that. We've got some simple objectives tonight. As I said, this lecture is not really about Britain. It's really about giving us confidence that God can be trusted. And we're going to do that by looking at this little nation of Britain. Britain, we're going to show that Britain is spoken of in the Bible by the name of Tarshish. That Britain will oppose a massive Russian slash European invasion of Israel. And Britain is therefore destined to distance itself from Europe. And by looking at this, we want to establish that the Bible can be trusted. And most importantly, that this plan of God that we talk about, it can involve all of us. That's the message we'd like to leave you with. So the first thing we want to do is to establish how is Brit Britain um, spoken of in the Bible. We've said it's referred to by the name of Tarshish. And what we find is that there are an Eastern and a Western Tarshish in the Bible. Now, when we say Eastern and Western, we mean with respect to the country of Israel. We're going to talk principally tonight about the Western Tarshish, but to begin with, we're going to have a brief look at this Eastern Tarshish just for the purposes of, of clarity. Now, when we look at this, this Eastern Tarshish, we're going to, what we find is that it um, occurs in three passages of the Bible, and they're all in a book of the Bible called Second Chronicles. In the first passage, we read, And he, that is King Jehoshaphat of Judah, made ships to go to Tarshish, and they made the ships in Ezion Geba. Now, I'm not sure if you can see on that map Ezion Geba. It's this little country right down the very bottom of Israel, what is known today as Elat. So here's Ezion Geba. They made ships at Ezion Geba to go to Tarshish. Bearing in mind that back in those days there was no Suez Canal. So clearly, if you're going from Ezion Geba to Tarshish, it was east of Israel. What's the second observation we can make? The king's ships went to Tarshish. And what did they bring back from this eastern Tarshish? They brought gold, silver, ivory, apes, etc. Peacocks, which are produce of, of India or Africa. And we believe that, in fact, this eastern Tarshish was, was India. And finally, we note that in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, that the ships that were used to sail to this eastern Tarshish were, were destroyed by a storm and that they were broken and not able to sail. And there's no mention of Eastern Tarshish from then on. So from about 850 um, BC, Eastern Tarshish ceased to feature in the biblical record. So 
What we're going to do for the remainder of the evening now is to look at Western Tarshish. And we're told a lot about this Western Tarshish. There's about seven points of reference or seven things we're told about Tarshish that we can look at and help to, to identify what this country is. Now, I've put these seven points in a particular order and the purpose of that order is to help narrow our, if you like, options of what this country might be. So let's do an overview and just look at these seven points. And if you'll excuse me, I need to close a little message that's coming up on my screen. So these are the seven points. In the Bible, Tarshish, we're told, is west of Israel, a coastal land, a maritime power, a merchant power, a source of a number of metals, but the most important is tin because it was the most rare one. It was a colonial power symbolised by a lion and it's an ally of Israel and it's influential in the Arabian Peninsula. Quite a lot we're told about this little or this country of, of Tarshish which we believe is Britain. So we're going to step through these seven things and I, I hope you see as we step through them that we're going to narrow down the possibilities of what this country of Tarshish could be and eventually I hope you'll see that there's no ambiguity that it is definitely the country of Britain. So let's consider our first point. Tarshish is west of Israel. How do we know that? Well we're told in the story of Jonah, I'm sure most of us have had Bible stories read to us about Jonah and the fish that swallowed Jonah. What you mightn't know is that Jonah was on a ship that was heading to Tarshish. And where did Jonah board that ship? Well, he boarded it at a place called Joppa, which is in Israel, and he would have headed from there through the Mediterranean Sea. So that's the first point. If you wanted to go to Tarshish, you had to go to Joppa. The second thing is Tarshish is a coastal land. In Isaiah chapter 23 of the Bible, we read this, How ye ships of Tarshish, be still ye inhabitants of the isle. And that word isle, we tend to think of it as thinking of an island, but the, the word in the Hebrew actually means a coast or island. So it could be one or the other. So that doesn't necessarily confine it to an island, but the word is used of both. It has to have a coast. So that narrows it down a little bit. The next important thing we learn about Tarshish is that it's a maritime power. How do we know that? There's a couple of passages on the screen here I'd like to direct your attention to. Whale, O ships of Tarshish, for it, that is Tyre, is laid waste. In Ezekiel we read these words, the ships of Tarshish travelled for you with your merchandise. So we're being told here that this country of Tarshish was a maritime power. Maritime both from a, you know, a, um, vessels that were used for trading as well as military vessels. And what we're going to see later is that it will, this country or power of Tarshish will remain a maritime power right up until the return of Christ. Does that describe Britain today? Well, Britain is one of the four countries in the world, actually the fifth now, because I think India has just 
um, uh, released an aircraft carrier in the last week. I'm not sure whether it's operational. But nevertheless, there's only a few countries in the world that have a navy as significant as Britain. And to quote Earl Howe, the Minister of Defence in 2015, he said, the fact that we are one of the four countries in the world building aircraft carriers underscores our commitment to remain engaged in the world. And you can read between the lines what that means. Another feature of Tarshish is that it's a merchant power. In other words, it makes money out of buying and selling goods and exchanging goods. And no doubt that was related to the fact that it was a merchant power as well. Oh, sorry, that it was a dominant maritime power. Its history as a merchant power goes back to at least the 8th century BC. How do we know that? Well, one of its key trading partners in the 8th century was the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians inhabited uh, Tyre and Sidon, which is in modern-day Lebanon. And that area was, at the time, the centre of trade in the world. Now, in Isaiah 23, which we have on the screen here, God prophesied the destruction of Tyre. So Tyre is just um, north of Israel on the Mediterranean coast. In Isaiah 23, God prophesied the destruction of that power, and that was significant. We're going to show you why. We read these words. The burden of Tyre... Howl, ye ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no entering in. From the land of Shittim it is revealed to them. So in other words, from this little country of Cyprus, the ships that would sail to Tarshish heard news of the destruction of Tyre. Now why would they howl? Why would the merchants of Tarshish be sorrowful when they heard about the destruction of this city of Tyre? Well, because they traded with it. It was a source of income for them. And so when they heard of its destruction, that was going to have a significant impact upon its economy. So what is interesting is what followed. Isaiah 23 goes on to say this, Pass ye over to Tarshish, howl ye inhabitants of the isle, is this your joyous city whose antiquity is of ancient days? Her own feet shall carry her afar off to sojourn. So what does that mean? Her own feet shall carry her afar off. So it's talking about Tyre, and it's saying her own feet are going to carry her somewhere else. So it's talking about its, um, its role as a trading power. Its role as a trading hub would move. That was because it had been destroyed. The point of interest is where it was moved to. And as someone wrote... Water finds its own level, so trade finds its own hub. Commerce and trade cannot be taken captive and be compelled by a conqueror to locate where he pleases. And although the Babylonians and the Greeks were successful in destroying Tyre, 
They had no control over where that trading hub was to move and it moved to Britain. So as a consequence of Tarshish inheriting the greatness of Tyre, it became known in the Bible as the daughter of Tyre. Now, you might say, well, what evidence do you have to support that? Well, we're not alone in making this observation. Many historians have documented how Tyre in its time was the trading hub and it moved success successively westward until eventually it settled in Britain. This is what John Ruskin said. He wrote a book called The Stones of Venice and he had this to say about the migration of Tyre as a trading power. Since first the dominion of man was asserted over the ocean, three thrones of mark beyond all others have been set up upon its sands, the thrones of Tyre, Venice and England. Of the first of these great powers, only the memory remains. Of the second, only the ruins. The third, which inherits their greatness, so it's speaking of Britain, if it forgets their example, may be led through prouder eminence to less pitied destruction. So this man who was a writer, a historian, he observed that that trading power moved from Tyre to Britain. And as we said, it's not surprising, therefore, that Britain is spoken of in the Bible as the daughter of Tyre. Okay. What about Britain today? Is it still a significant merchant power today? Well, you know, the figures speak for themselves. In 2021, UK was the 14th largest exporter in the world and the 7th largest importer in the world. That's not bad for a country that's just slightly larger than Victoria and the 22nd most populous country in the world. So the 14th largest exporter, 7th largest importer. It's still a merchant power today. But there's something else about this country of Tarshish that really helps us to narrow down the possibilities of what country is being spoken of. And it's the metals that came from this country. You see, Tarshish in the Bible, we learn, was a source of silver, iron, tin and lead. And we're going to focus on tin because that was one of the rarest metals in ancient times. Now, there are only really three places that fit the criteria that we've seen so far. We've seen that Tyre was a coastal land, uh, a merchant power, a maritime power, all of those things. So now we're set, uh, um, narrowing down our search to really three places, England, Brittany and Spain. Let's delve a little deeper. There's a number of historians that have written about the sources of tin in ancient times. One of them, um, there was an American, um, or Cleland, let's begin with Cleland's words, he says, in early Bronze Age, Spain was the principal source of tin. However, later, tin deposits in Cornwall, Cornwall, for those of you who don't know, is in the very south of England, Cornwall uh, sorry, tin deposits in Cornwall were discovered and became the primary area 
for good quality tin. The American Journal of Archaeology goes, to, goes on to say from the late Middle, Age, uh, Middle Helladic period onward, the Aegean world was making use of northwest European sources of tin, especially those in southwest England. The um, History of Ancient Geography Among the Greeks and Romans by Edward Bunbury had this to say, at a somewhat later period, but still long before the time of Herodotus, it is certain that the principal, if not the sole source from which tin, the tin used by the nations of the Mediterranean world was supplied, was from certain islands in the Western Ocean known as by the Greeks as the Cassiterides or Tin Islands. Now in this little map we've got here, I know it's a crude map, but you can see those Tin Islands depicted off the coast of France. So we've really only got a couple of options now, France and Britain. But here's the clincher. Just in very recent times, in 2019, a team of seven researchers published their extensive research that was done on 21, sorry, 27 tin ingots that were found submerged in the eastern Mediterranean. Now, these tin ingots come from three places. They came from the coast just off, uh, just off the coast of Crete, just off the coast of Turkey, but most of them came from three sources just off the coast of Haifa in Israel. So what they did was they, they got these tin ingots or blocks of, of tin and they subjected them to various chemical and um, uh, other radiological tests and from that they were able to compare the properties of the tin found in the Mediterranean with the tin that came from various other parts of the world. So you can see they, um, their, their research was very extensive. They compared the, the tin from Haifa, from, um, from Crete and from Turkey with all of these other places. But what they found was, their conclusion was, that when you, when you study these ingots, there's almost, it's almost certain that they came from Cornwall. This is what they had to say in their um, conclusion in their research paper. With the help of tin isotope composition and the trace elements of the object, it is further possible to exclude many tin resources from the European continent and, considering the current state of knowledge and the available data, to conclude that Cornish tin mines are the most likely suppliers for the 12th, 13th to 12th century tin ingots from Israel. So that really helps us to then narrow down that the Tarshish spoken of in the Bible is in fact Britain. But there's more that we'd like to share with you. Our next clue comes from the fact that, that um, from Ezekiel 38, which is the chapter that we had read to us tonight, it tells us there are a number of things about Britain, including that it was a colonial power symbolised by a lion. 
And we're going to look at that in a moment. But for a few minutes, we're going to have a look at the context of this chapter so that you feel more comfortable with understanding um, the background of it and what we're talking about. So the purpose of going to this chapter is to look at another characteristic of, of Tarshish, but we're going to also see that there's, this chapter has a relevance beyond that. Let's have a look first at um, the, the background to Ezekiel 38. We've divided the verses of the chapter up for you here and put some titles against it to help you get a bit of a feel for what it's talking about. It describes a future storm-like invasion of Israel by a confederacy of nations headed by Gog. In verses 1 to 3, God declared, declares his opposition to Gog. In verses 4 to 7, it speaks of Gog's allies and their weaponry. Verse 8, the people being invaded. 9 to 12, the invasion plan. Verse 13, the forces that oppose Gog. 14 to 17, the invasion is preordained by God. And finally, God's defeat of Gog attracts global recognition. Now, before we delve into the detail, let's look a bit at the time setting. Verses 11, 12 and 16 of the chapter are going to help us to do that. In verse 11, we're told that it was a time when, the, when this invader comes down into the Middle East, into Israel, that what it will, what it will um, encounter is unwalled villages. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, one of the things that becomes very apparent is that the villages were always walled. There wasn't a time in Israel's history in the past, in the Old Testament, where they dwelt in unwalled villages. So this chapter is not about Old Testament times. What other observations can we make? We're told that the people that are inhabiting Israel at the time will be regathered out of all nations. As we've got there, they will have been regathered from many countries following a long desolation of their country. Now, note that when this prophecy in Ezekiel, chapter 38, was written, Israel wasn't in the land. They were in dispersion. They'd been taken out of the land to Babylon. And they returned after a period of 70 years. So this um, regathering being spoken of here can't be referring to that regathering from Babylon. This regathering is referring to it being regathered from many countries. And what we find is that in the first century, that the, the Romans who occupied the land, they scattered Israel to the four corners of the earth. And it's only been in recent times where they began to regather. The final clue is that it will be in the latter days. Now that as expression, I referred to it earlier this evening, relates to the time period around the return of Christ. So this chapter is talking about a future event. And what we will present to you is that the fulfilment of this prophecy could only take place post-1948. That would be when all of those criteria apply. It would be in the latter days. It would be where they've been regathered from many countries as they were in the lead up to 1948. And now they are dwelling, their, their villages are without walls, gates and bars. 
with some exceptions. Okay, so where does that lead us to now? We want to now look in a little bit closer in Ezekiel 38 at what it has to say about Tarshish. You will notice that Tarshish is mentioned in verse 13. And the, the thing of interest to us is we're going to look at the forces that will oppose Gog in verse 13. Let's read that. Sheba and Detan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? So this is the, this is the rebuke, if you like, that is presented against the, the confederacy that comes into the land. Have you come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? So what we find here is that Tarshish is spoken of as being the mother of young lions. Notice it's also referred to as a, a merchant power, the merchants of Tarshish. But the thing that attracts our attention is that it's spoken of as a lion having young lions. Does that fit Britain? Well, yes, it does. There's a number of things here that depict, that uh, have reference to, to Britain, its royal arms, its royal coat of arms, even its coins, its heraldry. And even if you go to Trafalgar Square, you'll see it's filled with very large lions. The lion has always been the symbol of Britain. So the question then um, remains, well, if, if the lion is a symbol of Britain, who then are the young lions? Now, one of the useful things about the Bible when we're trying to understand a, a phrase is to look at where else that phrase has been used in the Bible. So when we ask ourselves the question, who are the young lions in Ezekiel 38? What we should do is to see whether that expression is used anywhere else in the Bible, and it is. And what we find is that in Ezekiel 19, it uses that expression of young lions. And what we learn from this is that it refers not to whelps or cubs. It's talking about lions who were able to live independently. Lions that were able to attack and to kill and to catch prey. So the young lions here are countries that have been colonised by Britain and retain an allegiance to her, even though they may have gained their independence. And such countries would include the Commonwealth nations such as Australia, Canada and New Zealand. And of course that's our title tonight, Britain and the Commonwealth in Bible prophecy. So here we have it here in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 13, a reference to Britain and the Commonwealth nations and, and others as well that have been colonised by Britain. So that's how the Bible presents Britain. It is referred to as Tarshish and those countries that it has colonised and re remain um, in allegiance with Britain are the young lions. Now, it's interesting that, both, that Britain is depicted as a mother lion both biblically and historically. Have a look at this. This is a World War I poster on the left-hand side here which was encouraging countries 
to support Britain in her, her war in, in Europe, in World War I. And it says this, The Empire needs men. All answer the call, helped by the young lions. The old lion defies its, his foes, enlist now. And you can see, of course, those countries that are listed there, Australia, Canada, India and New Zealand, all countries that have been colonised by Britain and remained in allegiance to it. What was interesting is that when the, um, the Leave vote won, this was the, the front page of the Daily Express. The British lion roars for Boris and Brexit. Isn't that interesting? That people recognise, even today, that the lion is associated with the identity of Britain. So, our subject tonight, the destiny of Britain, has a much greater relevance to us than just identifying that Britain is spoken of as Tarshish. What we're hoping to show that what the Bible has to say about Britain gives us confidence that we can trust it and give us incentive to seek out God and his plan. There's just one point, other point of identification that we want to look at of Britain that we want to draw your attention to. And that's this. It's pretty obvious from the fact that when this power-styled go comes down into the Middle East, it's going to be opposed by Britain and the young lions. So whether we like it or not, Australia is going to be involved in this conflict. Australia is going to be involved in this future conflict that we read of in Ezekiel 38. It's going to involve a huge number of countries. Now, what we learn is that um, Tarshish will be confederate with not only the young lions, but some other countries there, styled in verse 13, Sheba and Dedan. Before we look at Sheba and Dedan, what we want to do is to briefly look at Israel's relationship with Britain. I'm going to read to you a, a passage here that was written by a Christadelphian author, and I'd like you to note the date when this was written. It wasn't written in 2020. It was written over 150 years ago, before Brexit, before World War I and World War II. And this is the observation that the author made by reading his Bible. I know not whether the men who at present contrive the foreign policy of Britain entertain the idea of assuming the sovereignty of the Holy Land. Now, bear in mind, there was no Israel at the time when this was written. In 1848, Palestine was occupied by a handful of Turks, agriculturalists. It was fairly sparsely populated. Very few Jews when this was written. But this is what he says. I don't know what the current foreign policy is of this country, but I can tell you what it will be. He says, and of promoting its colonisation by the Jews, their present intentions, however, are of no importance one way or the other because they will be compelled by events soon to happen to do what under existing circumstances 
Heaven and earth combined could not move them to attempt. He didn't know that Britain was going to sign the Balfour Declaration. He didn't know that Britain was going to have a mandate over Palestine that lasted for decades. He read his Bible and he knew that Britain, and we don't have time to look at it tonight, Britain would be involved in recolonising Israel in the land. In other words, Britain would assist in the regathering of all the Jews back to the land. And essentially what happened was Britain was responsible for establishing a homeland for the Jews in Israel, not the Northern Territory as one of the contenders for their homeland would be, or not in Nigeria, but in the land of Israel. They established a homeland for the Jews World War I led to the creation of that homeland or made it possible and World War II drove them there following the persecution by Hitler. So Britain has been involved in, has had a relationship with Israel that goes back at least 50 years. What about these other, uh, these other countries that are mentioned in verse 13, Sheba and Dedan? We don't have time to look at it, but we, what we find from when we look through the Bible is that they settled in the Arabian Peninsula. What evidence is there to, to support the claim that Britain has a relationship with Sheba and Dedan in the last days? We'll have a look at this. Before we look at Sheba and Dedan individually, Britain and the Arabian Peninsula. And this is dated June 2022. The Trade Secretary launches free trade negotiations <coughs> excuse me, between the UK and the Gulf Cooperation Council, made up of Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And it talks there about the purpose of this, um, this tree freight, uh, free trade agreement between um, Britain and the Arabian Peninsula. It's got a great interest in that part of the world. Why? Because it's a, it's a maritime merchant power. It relies on shipping. If you interrupt the trade through the Red Sea or the Suez Canal, it cuts Britain's throat. So it's, it's why over many decades, Britain has maintained a very strong relationship with both Saudi Arabia and Oman. We, do, we only need to look back at you know, 2012, David Cameron, the then Prime Minister, Theresa May, 2018, Boris Johnson, 2022. They all make a visit to Saudi Arabia or have Saudi Arabia visit them. Same with Oman. There's pictures here of various dignitaries, the Queen, Prince Charles, visiting the Sultan of Oman. And in fact, when you, you look back and do some research, what you find is that Britain basically paid 50% of the wages of the king or the sultan of Oman. Why? Because of this waterway and this waterway. Britain wants to have control of the countries around those waterways. What about Yemen? Yemen's been at war for something like 30 years. How's Britain been involved in trying to control circumstances in Yemen? Well, this little symbol says it all. Britain has been providing planes and bombs to Saudi Arabia for decades 
to participate in the war against the Yemenites, against those that are um, trying to overthrow the government. And I did have some statistics here. Um, for example, over a three-month period in 2015, the value of exports of British-made bombs and missiles increased by 11,000% from 9 million to 1 billion. That was the quantity of weapons that Britain was providing to Saudi Arabia in its war against Yemen. Why? Because Britain wanted Saudi to be the victor in that war. So what have we seen so far? That Britain and those confederate nations referred to in the Bible, um, we were, sorry, we've established that Britain and the nations confederate with it are styled Tarshish and the Young Lions. What we want to do now is to look at what the future of Britain is, what we can expect Britain to do as um, revealed in the Bible. So far we've confined our attention in Ezekiel 38 to, to Tarshish, the young lions and the nations confederate with Britain. What we want to do now is to look at the antagonist, the countries that will support um, Gog when he comes down into the land. Let's begin by considering the protagonist of Rosh. Now in Ezekiel 38, if we were to read that from the revised version, this is what we would read. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face toward Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. We're going to quote to you from three historians, just to show that we have consulted a number of references here. We're going to look at actually four three historians and someone more recently, a, a Russian um, a, a German and a French historian. So let's begin with Gregor. You might guess by the sound of his name that he's Russian, and you'd be right. He wrote a book called Kiev Rus. You might recognise Kiev. It's the capital of Ukraine. And concerning Kiev Rus, which is this territory shown shaded here, he had this to say, Kiev Rus was for a long time known among the Greeks as Scythia or Tauro-Scythia. And these Toro Scythians call themselves Rus. Okay, so that's our first observation from this Russian historian. What about Gesenius? Now, Gesenius is one of the most famous students of the Hebrew text. He had this to say Rosh is undoubtedly the Russians. In the interest of time, we won't um, read the rest of the quote, but that is his conclusion. And he says, well, I will give a little bit more detail. He says that they were dwelling on the river Ra, which I've, or Volga, which I've highlighted there in that sort of um, pale orangey colour. And finally, Bocart says this. Bocart was a, a French historian. Ross is the most ancient form under which history makes mention of the name of Russia. And one final quote from someone more recent from Vladimir Putin. And this is very insightful. This is what he has to say. Russians, Ukrainians and Belarusians are all descendants of ancient Rus, which was the largest state in Europe. Slavic and other tribes across the vast territory from Ladoga, Novgorod and Skov to Kiev 
and Chernigov were bound together by one language, which we now refer to as Old Russian. Economic ties, the rule of the princes of Rurik dynasty, and after the baptism of Rus, Rus, the Orthodox faith. Why did he write this book called The Historical Unity of Russia and Ukraine? Pretty obvious, he thinks they should all be one again. And he's basing his argument on the fact that they were all one power. So what I'll do is just superimpose upon this map a map of modern-day Ukraine and you can see why Mr Putin thinks he's got an entitlement to be there. Because he says religiously and also historically it belongs to me and I'm going to take it. That's the Rosh of verse 2 of Ezekiel chapter 38. Undoubtedly the Russians. What about the other countries that are mentioned? Magog and Goma. We're going to make some statements about Magog and Goma. We'll, we'll ask you to understand we don't have time to establish this tonight, but we can provide you with references to support what we're about to say. The Magogites migrated from north of the Baltic Sea, even to the Baltic, and were above the Galatea. And I'm quoting here from historians. Magog, therefore, comprises Central Europe. The descendants of Goma were known as Galatea or Galatians, and migrated to France, Holland, Belgium, below Magog. And it's interesting to note that in 1844, the King of France, who was Louis Philip, visited England in a vessel named the Goma. So that's very interesting. What we're saying, ladies and gentlemen, is this, that this confederacy that invades Israel in the latter days is going to be made up of Russia, and Europe. Does that seem surprising? If you ask people today, what, on what terms uh, is Russia with Western Europe, they'd say, well, not real good terms. And we can make that observation ourselves. I mean, Russia is threatening to cut off gas to these European nations. So to stand here and to say that one day Russia is going to be confederate with Western Europe in invading Israel is a big statement. Some would say that's laughable. And you might ask, well, how is that going to happen? What is it that's going to change enmity between Russia and Western Europe to cooperation and a confederacy? And the answer is religion, the Roman Catholic religion. That is what will bind these two currently disunited parties together. That's what the Bible says. So we look with interest at Bible students as, what, as to the influence that the, papal, the papacy is happening and the coming together of the Russian Orthodox religion and the Roman Catholic religion, making overtures to one another after many centuries of being apart. That's another subject in itself. So we've looked at these two principal countries of Rosh um, and Goma and... Magog. Might just go back for a moment. So let's pause and consider. What we've seen is that there is going to be a conflict. That Britain is going to come into collision with Europe. And on account of that, we're saying that we expect Britain and Europe to part ways. Now, you might say, 
That's nothing new. That happened in World War I. It happened in World War II. But there's a difference. In World War I and World War II, Britain was confederate with Russia. Not so here. But there's another important difference. The most important difference between World War I and World War II and what we're saying here. This hasn't happened yet. How do we know that? Well, what we find is that, um, and I'm conscious of time, but in the remaining verses of this chapter, we find that Russia's victory is short-lived. Not only that, the power that intervenes and destroys the Russian and European confederacy is the Lord Jesus Christ. When he returns, there is going to be an earthquake that will bring those powers to their knees. Now, I'd like to just direct your attention to verses 19 and 20 of Ezekiel 38. This is how God is going to bring an end to the Russian power. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. And I'll call for a sword against him that is Gog throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. And as a result of that conflagration, as a result of God's use of natural forces, the Russian power will be destroyed. If we had time, we, can turn, we could turn to a parallel record of this in Zechariah chapter 14. We might just do that. We've got a couple of minutes. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 14. It's towards the, the end of the Old Testament. We're going to read of a parallel account of what we've just read, of divine intervention used to destroy Gog. Zechariah chapter 14 verses 1 to 4. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city go, shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle, in other words, in Old Testament times. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. God's going to intervene and he's going to intervene in the person of Jesus Christ. And it says his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem. And you know, if we go over to Acts chapter 1, that's exactly where he left before he ascended to heaven. 
And we want to direct your attention to what he said just before he ascended to heaven, or what was said after he ascended to heaven by the angels. I want you to read with me Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. And when he had spoken these things, that is when Jesus had spoken these things, and while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Where were they when those words were spoken? They were on the Mount of Olives. And it's to that very place that they will return. And when he does return, after he has conquered that Russian confederacy, he's going to do something that's never happened before on this earth. He's going to set up a worldwide dominion. And Christ is going to rule from Jerusalem. And there are many prophecies in the Old Testament that give us further details of that. But here's an overview of what the restored kingdom of God on earth will look like. In that day, Christ will be king over all the earth. Christ will be acknowledged and accepted by the Jews as their king. Britain will use her ships to carry back the Jews to the land. Britain will submit to Christ and bring gifts to Christ. Jerusalem will be Christ's capital and the location of a temple of worship for all nations. No more Mecca. No more Western Wailing Wall. No more St Peter's Basilica. The resurrected and immortalised believers will be Christ's co-rulers. There will be peace and equality throughout all the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, God's gone to a lot of trouble to make it possible for us to have a Bible. This little country of Britain that we've considered tonight, as we said, had dominion at one point over all the earth. And as a result of that, the English language spread. It's the most commonly spoken language today. And God did that so that people in all of those countries would have easy access to a Bible. Sure, the Bible's been written in subsequent in other languages subsequently, but for many centuries, it was the uh, it was the predominant language. The question is what we are going to do about God's invitation. As we said, the purpose of tonight is not so much about Britain; it's about giving us confidence that God has a plan, and that by looking at Britain, we can see that that plan is unfolding. That plan will involve Australia. The question is, what are you going to do for your family? That day is coming. May it be that we accept God's invitation to be part of his family and that when Christ comes, he will say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.